so much for joining me on Teach Me How to Money. We're here this week with Jeff Chrysler. He is the author of a book called Dollars and Cents. Jeff, how are you? I'm great. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your, what your book is about. Our book, which I wrote with Dan Ariely, who many of your listeners do know, should know, uh, is about the mistakes that we make when we think about money, the psychology of money. It's a, using behavioral science, uses stories to get the lessons of behavioral science, particularly as it applies to personal finance, into our minds so that we can create better systems to have better spending and saving habits in the future. Okay. So what you guys are saying, so tell us a little bit about Dan. I know Dan. He's great. He's super smart. What's his specialty? Dan uh, is author of the book Predictably Irrational, which is like a international, interstellar bestseller. <laughs> uh, and he was one of the sort of leaders in the field of behavioral science. Many listeners may know Richard Thaler. He won the Nobel Prize recently. It, behavioral science is basically the, the combination of psychology and economics, particularly behavioral economics is. And it's like how do real people actually think about money? Like what is the psychology? What happens to our mind? When I was growing up, like I went to – uh, Princeton studied economics there. My professors were like Ben Bernanke and Alan Blindair and like other white guys. And I learned from the best, but like what they taught was traditional economics. And that which, it's rational. Right, exactly. Like rational man. But what's the difference between rational and irrational economics? I think uh, – I don't know if our, our listeners necessarily know what rational economics is. So if you can give them an example. Sure. Rational economics basically assumes that all of us individually make decisions that are uh, well calculated based upon having all the information at hand that we're just rational robots who look like at the price of milk and if it's seven cents more in this store than it is next door, we're going to go get the cheaper one, right? That we operate strictly on supply and demand notions. Got it. And it takes all the humanity out of it. Whereas the irrational economic actors, who we really are, we're really humans. We have emotions. We have needs. We have frustrations. We might go upset into the store and I'm sure everyone here goes food shopping when they're hungry and they buy more. Like that's not what a rational economic I actor I told you does. that in confidence that I often shop hungry. Jack. You said that you didn't shop. You just shoved it in your mouth and walked out. <laughs> And I was like, if it's in my belly, you can't make me pay. That's true. Um, and I'm glad that you told everyone that. Here's my question. So um, in your book, you say that we handle money in a way that makes us feel good rather than a way that makes sense. Can you just tell me what that means? What does it mean to feel good about how you spend money versus doing it in a smart way? One thing we forget about spending money is that it is an emotional activity. Emotions come sure. into play. And the emotion that often we deal with money is like uncertainty. Uh, or, or discomfort because it's really hard to figure out how to spend money, how to assess value. Uh, you know, not to get too in the woods, but we should think about opportunity costs, right? That's an economic term, which basically means all the other things you could spend your money on at any time, right? You have a $5 latte. That's what everybody uses as an example. That could be five lottery tickets. It could be five things of gum. It could be $5 towards your retirement that you'll spend in 40 years. But thinking about money and all your options in that way is just overwhelming and it's stressful and it's just a, a pain and, and we can't do it and we don't do it. And in the book, we don't suggest you try to change your nature and do that. We acknowledge that because it's so hard to think about money, we find the easier ways. We find the ways that have shortcuts that, that um, make it so that we are relieved of that burden of the stress of thinking about money and that feels good. Give me an example of how I would do that. So uh, credit cards are a great example, right? Sure. Right? You have um, these cards that make it so you have – you are less conscious of how much you're spending. There are studies show you use a credit card, you spend more, you tip more, you forget how much you're spending. That's right? definitely true. Because right? it reduces what's called the pain of paying, which is the idea that we actually have the same area of our brain stimulated when we pay, when we hand over a $20 bill 
that we do when we feel physical pain. And that pain should tell us, like you put your hand on a stove, ow, it burns. I look at my hand, I move my hand away. The pain of paying should tell us, oh, look at the spending. I should decide, is that a good idea or not? So I would feel more, I would feel physical pain if I was paying for a new mattress with like $20 bills. Totally. But it's interesting because um, Amazon does their quick pay. They're taking away all the steps to helping you, relieve you of your money. So it feels very painless. It took a lot of effort to make that step seem so painless. Amazon is fantastic, depending on your perspective, at using the pain of paying. At, at reducing it so that we're not conscious. Like they have one-click technology, right? So you mm-hmm. just press one thing. Uh, they've used uh, this Amazon Prime, which is you pay one $99 fee once a year. Then the rest of the year feels like, oh, free shipping, right? Totally. It feels like you're not paying. They now have a store called Amazon Go where you just walk in, you put the items in your bag, and you walk out, and little code is scanned, and you get charged later. So you're not even conscious of paying at all. You don't even feel like you do it. And it's all promoted. It's like, it's easier to pay. It's more fun to shop. And the truth is, it just makes you spend more. You just spend more. But you feel like because you paid in the beginning that you're getting something for free now? Right. Well, part of the pain of paying is is, there's two elements. One is both your awareness of whether you're doing it, and the other is the distant, the time between when you pay and when you consume. Like if you – the example we use in the book is is my honeymoon um, or a more fanciful version of my honeymoon, <laughs> which is that we paid in advance, which is true. And we probably paid more than we would have if we had like paid later. But we paid in advance and we got there and there was no pain in the consumption. It was just an awesome honey. We just like had a drink. Then we looked for a bar. Then we went and got another drink. Then we had a pina colada. We just like had a great time. If we'd paid while we were doing that, sure. we would have spent less because each time we had a transaction, we'd be like, oh, let me think about it. Let me wonder if I should do this or not. But it wouldn't have been pleasant. And same if we'd paid after. We sort of – in the middle, we would have, you know, as we're buying things, thought, oh, is this worth it? Or afterwards sort of look back and had it be colored with like a, a bad flavor. I always had an idea for a podcast called That's How They Get You. Yeah, And I feel like uh, cruises and vacations, you know, they do these all-inclusive things. It seems like uh, when you get there, you are you have all this freedom, but you really paid for that freedom up front. Right. And, and if you don't drink a lot, you've paid to drink. So what are some ways um, – you mentioned triggers in your mm-hmm. book, spending triggers. So what are those? Triggers are essentially like value cues that uh, get us to sort of – Make it easier, like I said, to assess a financial decision and so we do it quickly. Um, sales are a great example. Oh, yeah. Right? People are more likely to buy something that is uh, a $100 shirt marked down to $60 than a $60 shirt because they think they're saving $40. Oh, my God. What a great deal. When really they're spending 60 We really should think about what we're spending, not what we're saving because that savings doesn't exist. We never get that. But there are companies that have built their whole model on this idea that like a sale can get you to spend. JCPenney, again, it's a story in the book and many of your listeners may know. They had this whole thing where they always overinflated their prices and then they had all these sales and coupons and people loved shopping there. It was fun. It was almost like a game. Um, then a new CEO came in and said instead of like having you know fake prices, let's just be fair and square, right? Let's be nice. Let's give the, the real prices the same as our competitors and their customers hated it. He got fired. And oh, wow. then I they reinstituted. They put back in the fake prices and with the sales, and all of a sudden everyone came back. And it's like that stuff just made people buy it because they were like, there was an endorphin rush and there was an excitement and there was things to play like relativity and anchoring and all these other. Well, people love terms. to see also a change in in color. I have no data to support this, but seeing a slash and the red 
thirty percent off get makes people feel good. Right. It's like that's the flavor of color. Is that what I said earlier? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's part of it too. You're it's very stimulating to see, you know, two colors and an action. Right. Again, it it triggers emotion. Mm-hmm. Right? And and it's something that um like I've spoken to a lot of Groups recently that are like investors and bankers and um, investment bankers, which is a combination of those two words. <laughs> and these are like uh, super alpha dudes primarily, although some of them are women, <laughs> who like have this mindset that it's just like, oh, let's just be aggro and rough. But like emotions play a huge role even in investing, okay. right? even in market decisions. And so when you start to accept that on that level of financial decision making where it is like largely driven by numbers and trends – then you take it down to like our own personal like decision. Like, should I buy this coffee? Should I buy that sweater? Should I buy that house? Like, emotions are what play in. Like, and, and feeling good, feeling like we made the right decision, feeling like we've done something to trigger those colors, feeling like we've done something to like make our family happy. That is a factor beyond just supply and demand, beyond just what the price is. And we're often not conscious that that emotional weight is there on the scale along with the financial weight. So you're talking about emotions and investing, right? You know, we always say don't, you know, don't drive angry, don't invest angry, don't sell with emotion. Is that something that you guys talk about in the book as well? We don't get that deep into like stock investing. I mean, I think the lessons that are in the book are applicable, uh, particularly things like uh, loss aversion, which sure. is the idea that like we feel a loss a lot more than we feel the than we um, are get joy from the equivalent gain, right? Like to um, if you lose ten dollars, that pain you'd have to gain $20 to feel an equivalent joy. So we're more likely to act in a way that is going to avoid a loss than might get a gain. So you can imagine spinning that out to investment. Like you're more likely to, you know, try not to lose your money than you are thinking about what you can gain in it. Oh, that's interesting. So someone would rather keep their money in the mattress knowing where their money is rather than putting it in the market with the fear of losing it. Right. Like if you you say – you know, again, it's sort of like framing. Like here, you have a thousand dollars in your mattress. If you put it in the market, um, you know there's uh, an eighty percent chance that it'll turn to fifteen hundred, but there's a twenty percent chance it'll turn into five hundred. Right. So they're going to think more about like, oh, that I might lose five hundred, even though you could do there's math involved with twenty sure. percent and all that. But they're they're going to, you know, have that oh, I could lose X way more heavily than I can gain Y. So tell me more about sales. I know that sales and deals and shopping is a huge part of where we spend our money. And do you guys have any more insights and triggers about uh, ways we can avoid being tricked by sales? Sure. Well, the first one is what I said about sort of ignoring a sale price, right? And ignoring like quote unquote savings because you're never, you don't actually get those savings. Uh, You know, just look at the amount that you're going to spend and decide, is that what I want to spend on this item? Is that a fair price? Forget about what it used to be or what they say, it's going to go up this much in a couple days. Like that's all stuff to make you feel rushed and to get an emotional state. Like just decide if you want to spend X dollars, not what it used to be or what uh, the sale price is. So you set the budget. You don't let them set the budget for you. Right. Now, a lot of times it's hard to – Assess what we should spend. How do you know what a sweater is worth, right? That's kind of how they get you because not only um, does that, uh, that that sale price trigger all I want to save, but it also like establishes something we can compare it to. Mm-hmm. Right? There's the concept of relativity, which is basically like we'll judge things relative to other things in the same category. That is like we judge that $60 sweater relative to like an imaginary $100 sweater. Right. So compared to that $100 sweater, a $60 sweater is a great deal. Um, and that's a way that we sort of like trick ourselves into uh, assessing value. Well, sweaters are also difficult too because one could be a brand that people have heard of and one right. might be a brand that no one's heard of and the quality of wool may be the same but you might feel worse about yourself buying the no-name brand. 
Absolutely. And, and those are things that we can't tell you whether or not you should judge. Brand, brand matters to some people. Having a logo matters to others. But again, it's about thinking about what matters to you and if that price matches it. Now, you can't always decide that. Like we're not telling people to like bring you know, a mental calculator to every decision. You'll go crazy. But occasionally stop and think about these things. Uh, you know, another thing to be aware of when you're shopping is uh, basically anchoring or priming, which sort of work together. And, and it's the idea that like you see a price for something. It's like the manufacturer suggests a retail price. Okay. And that becomes a heavy anchor that, that makes it so that whatever other prices there are, if it's close to that, it'll seem reasonable. Um, you know, you see, oh. uh, you see a, a, a shoe store, right? And in the window, there's a $2,000 pair of pumps, right? You never buy that, but you walk inside and suddenly the other shoes that are like 350 they seem they like, seem oh, reasonable. exactly, back to, back to normal. Um, real estate is a, is a good example um, for those people that might be buying real estate. And I assume they don't live in New York because that's impossible. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you see a listing price of you know, $2.1 million. And then they're like, oh, it's reduced to, you know, 1.95, whatever. Like that first price is an anchor price that's going to affect your, not just the decision-making about that particular house or studio, uh, but other stuff in there, other related prices. Sure. So, and then you might see, oh my goodness, this studio apartment is uh, is being sold for 750000 It must be such a deal. Right. You start to lose your sense of perspective. Right. Or you get then to a, a similar thing, which is like seven hundred fifty. what's wrong with it? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> like, how could anyone only spend 750 it's years true. worth of earnings? Your, your, <laughs> your judgment can be skewed by all this stuff. You, what you came in with this common sense, suddenly you don't know where, you, where your head is gone. Yeah, common sense. That was another title we thought of. <laughs> Actually, I'll be honest with you. I've done some think, cool things in my life. The title of this book isn't necessarily one of them. Dollars and cents. I mean, well, it gets the job done. You know what we're talking about. Well, but people like, seem to like the book. People love the book. People, well, let's take a break to, for one second talk about people who like the book. Who likes it? The Washington Post. There's a writer at the Washington Post who just loves me. She's had me on like a bunch of different things with her. Um, she says I'm hilarious, which is or all that matters. It's debatable. She says <laughs> I am hilarious. Uh, the Washington Post, it's like the best personal finance advice. HuffPo, Business Insider, um, Audible, it's like their best business books. Uh, Why do you think people like it so much? Like there's so many money books out. Why do people like yours? I think – and I think the reason why Dan wanted me to join him is because we really make it accessible. I mean, one thing I've always done in my career in a lot of different fields is using humor. I mean I'm – you know, I have this economics law background but really I've spent most of my career in comedy um, using humor and storytelling to relate complex ideas to most people. And like we start each chapter with just a story. Like one of them is a story about a woman who shops at JCPenney. Right? And, and everybody can relate to these sort of people, to these situations. Sure. And we don't like hammer you over the head. We're not like Susie Orman, like you should save 10 percent of every paycheck. We're like, here's what's going on. Like you people, we trust you to be smart people. If you know the information, you understand what's going on. We explain why we do things and then we say, you know what? Don't like freak out and make every decision like a, an obsessive one. But – you know, know what you're doing and then we give you some ideas like, OK, you're not going to change human nature. But instead of having your human nature be taken advantage of by other people, by marketers and salesmen, you take advantage of your human nature to create systems, to create um, regular habits that like use your failings for you instead of against you, right? Like um, there's a thing called mental accounting, which is like when money is in different mental accounts, uh, we think about it differently. Like you go to Vegas and you get your your chips. Like you think, oh, that's play money, even though it's the same as your other sure. money. Uh, and we suggest you do something um, 
with actual literal different accounts to, to take advantage of that, and that is to put some money in like a a little savings account and some in your checking account because we tend to look at our checking account as that's our discretionary spending. Right. So if you have trouble with your discretionary spending, fool yourself into thinking, you know, you only have whatever $500 a paycheck goes in there and the rest goes in your check your savings. You have that other money, but if you look at that, you're not going to if you look at that $500, you're not going to spend more than that. Um, so instead of trying to like change your human nature and become the person that suddenly thinks about retirement every time you want to buy a coffee, just create systems where it's almost unautomatic. I think that's really helpful. And um, I would love to know, I know our listeners would love to know more of these. Well, they should read the book, of course, but they should also would love to know more about ways that they can save, that they can sort of trick themselves into not being as careless with money. Because we all want to spend less and be smarter, but life is hard and money seems to disappear and we all feel bad about ourselves. Well, we do have some more sort of specific ideas in the book and we're always coming up with new ones. I think that there's sort of an overarching theme and that is to, to occasionally stop and think about your decisions but, but to categorize the type of decisions you have. I mean, oftentimes we stress about the little things um, like we'll worry, hey, should I spend 10 cents more per pound to buy organic tomatoes than not? Like those 10 cents per pound over a lifetime will never add up to like am I spending $200,000 too much on a house? Sure. Right? But we tend to make those big decisions quickly like buying a car, buying a house, going to you know, spending money for college. So categorize your spending in a few different ways. One is like the little spending. Like don't stress about that. Maybe once a year, once every six months, think to yourself, should I – do I need a $5 coffee every day? Do sure. I need this? Just think about it every now and then and then you'll get in a habit. Those are like habitual things. Um, then there's the big spending, right? The like $1,100 mattress, the house, all these other things. Those are the ones where you should really stop and think and do some research and, and compare prices because – you know, ten percent of a hundred thousand dollars is significantly more than ten percent of one fifty. And I think that whole uh, analogy to the five dollar latte is so tired, mm. and everyone's yes. so tired of hearing about it because people need their caffeine in the morning, and whatever right. gets you to work, which is how you make your money. I think you should just encourage people to do that. But at the same time, you're right. Think about it. If you maybe once a week you can bring your coffee, or you could drink the coffee at work. I also really appreciate what you're saying about humor and empathy over advice and chastising. Um, no one, people who are going to read your book are people who either want to learn more about why they're doing things wrong or they're interested in learning about how other people do things wrong. They don't want to be made to feel dumber than they are. Mm-hmm. You know, And I don't think anyone wants to be made to feel dumber than they are because we right. already feel terrible. Right. And there's also the element of basically saying everybody does this. right? And that's what we found. Like Even the, the people that are business and money pros make these same mistakes. Right? The rich, the poor, the smart, the dumb, everyone has these human nature, these human failings that we talk about. Some just, you know, it's amplified if you're spending, you know, a million dollars a week on whatever. Do you think um, the people, the more money people have, the more money they spend, they don't like, what people can't pretend that they're still making $50,000 a year, even though they got the raise to $80,000 a year? Uh, I don't have any data to back up either way. I'll, I'll say this. There have been numerous studies that say as far as happiness goes, there's a number and the last study I saw was, I don't know, maybe six years ago, it was $75,000 a year. There's a number that like once you hit that, like your happiness doesn't really change. Like once, Basically, like once you get to I'm not struggling, then like you don't have the same level of needs. Like between 75000 and 200000 is kind of the same. So you might be inclined to then start spending more and not feeling as much scarcity. I think that everybody at every level of income approaches their their finances differently. And obviously their background um, and the lessons they've learned from their environment, from their family is going to affect what they do and how much they think about the future. I mean ultimately that's the biggest challenge, right? When we spend, 
now, it means spending – it means not having something to spend later. And we have a hard time thinking about ourselves in a week, a month, 20 years. And if we could just you know, connect to older Jeff, that would be great. <laughs> call, call older Jeff. He's here right now. So this is my last question. Is yes. So you have two children. What are you going to teach them about money? I'm going to teach them that if one of them distracts tourists with like a little show in the front, the other one can get into the pockets. Most tourists keep their money in their back pocket, which is just silly. Excellent advice. Yes. What I, else would you teach them? I, I would teach them the, the, the basic ideas of opportunity costs, okay. which is you, know, you can spend $5 on you know, this comic book, but that's $5 you can't spend this weekend when we go to the movies on popcorn. Or, or whatever it is that, that will resonate with them. And then when the movies come that Saturday, say, you know, you can have popcorn because you spent it then. And that sort of like gets them to understand that, that money is um, – what's great about money is that it's, uh, it's fungible, which means it can – you know, any money is the same as any money. A $10 bill here is the same as a $10 bill later. Um, it's divisible. It's universal. It can be used for so many things. And to help them to understand that as like a baseline um, – function of their financial like cognitive skills is going to help them um, in part because it's it's hard to really say what to do because money is going to change, right? Whether it's crypto or fintech or all these things, like the real um, specifics of how they handle money will change. But if they understand the underlying concepts, I think that will help them. But what if they rely on your emotional response to give in and give them the $5? I am a cold-hearted bee and I will never give in no matter how cute they are. And I'm just – that's my mantra. Every day I wake up, there's, there's a child whose knee or elbow is in my groin. And I'm like, I'm a cold-hearted bee. Well, I am so happy that you're here. Tell me more and tell the audience more where they can find more of your work and read more about behavioral finance. Sure. Well, uh, all about the book and my speaking stuff and all of the stuff I do is at jeffchrysler, K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R.com. And I'm also going to be running a website called peoplescience.com, which is all about applied behavioral science. So it's about all these different biases and all the cool academic research out there and how we can actually bridge that gap between like the science and applying it to our lives and to professional lives and, and to work because um, I feel like we're really on this verge of a moment when people are going to start saying, OK, cool science, let's change the world. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Ready to start investing? Sign up for Stash and then enter the promo code PODCAST and you'll get $5 to get started on your financial journey. Stash, it's your money. Simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of these statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.